Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the important vote today in Ohio to stop a cynical Republican power grab aimed at heading off a November referendum for abortion rights, which has majority support, which the gerrymandered Republican-controlled legislature is trying to do an end run around by changing the state's constitution to enshrine minority rule in the important swing state. Joining us is David Pepper, who served as the chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Then we'll speak with William Robinson, a distinguished professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He has written widely on global capitalism, world politics, social theory, and Latin America, and his most recent books are The Global Police State and Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, and he joins us to discuss his latest article at the Philosophical Salon, The Socialism of Fools of the Anti-Imperialist Left. Then finally, with Secretary of State Blinken warning the Wagner mercenary group are taking advantage of the coup in Niger, we'll look into the situation in Niger and the Sahel where Wagner mercenaries are making inroads and speak with Tommy Miles, a West African history enthusiast, independent scholar, author and recovering academic who is writing a history of Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso. And joining us now is David Pepper, who's the, who served as the chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and he's the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Pepper. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the wake-up call is today in Ohio, isn't it, with issue one? I mean, this is a mendacious effort by the Republicans to change the Constitution to stop the will of the majority in voting for abortion rights. Yeah, and everything else in the future. I mean, it's out, the whole thing's outrageous. It's a, um, a sneak attack on democracy by a gerrymandered legislature that doesn't want to be held accountable. So... But they're doing it on the August day where we never have big elections, hoping that people aren't paying attention. And we'll see by the end of the day if, if it works. It's fair. It's about as, as cynical a thing as I've ever watched. What What's happening to fight it, fight back? I mean, as you, as you point out, they're doing it in August when people are on vacation or, you know, don't expect to have to vote. So what are the what's the Democratic Party doing or the or the, the you know the anti-abortion activists? Yeah. I mean, well, this the good is a news do or is, die situation. The good news is it's it's not even just the Democratic Party. I mean, there has been a enormous coalition built to stop this thing that includes Democrats, a lot of Republicans, uh, former Governor Kasich, former Governor Taft, other major Republican figures. Um, Independence, the Libertarian Party. I mean, there's a, a very broad cross-section tr- saying listen this is different this is not some party issue they are making an end run on democracy itself you even have people who are who who do not support a woman's right to choose saying they're still voting no on this thing so they are trying to base they're banking on a, a turnout that that surprises everybody else against everybody else and um and the rest of us are just trying to make sure people see this for what it is. It's been very confusing. Their television ads are all about, you know, the same stuff they always bring up, um, trying to scare people into thinking this is about something it's not. And, and the hope is that people see through it. Well, aren't the TV ads showing the flag and saying the founding fathers would want this and and all of this patriotic jingoism, uh, which is obscuring the fact that it's an anti-democratic power grab. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely that. And they're trying to literally say, well, what, like the U.S. Constitution? Well, 45 out of 50 states have a 50% plus one majority rule when it comes to amending constitutions and states, including Ohio. We've had that for 110 years. Why? Because 110 years ago, there was so much corruption in our state house that people wanted a direct say, ultimately, in amending the Constitution to hold these people accountable. And the, today's current corrupt state house, the most corrupt in the nation, just doesn't want that kind of accountability. 
but they can't really say that or argue that because, of course, that would not be a very uh, something the voters would be interested in giving corrupt politicians more power from their own power. No, thank you. So, yeah, what they're doing now is simply um, is running scare tactic ads. California special interests are going to take over Ohio. I mean, it's all about as dishonest as you've ever seen. And again, hopefully people see through it. Um, I, I, I'm, I think they will. I'm hoping they will. But but I'm not going to say anything until I see the votes come in. So, David, could you, you basically sketch out for our audience what exactly the Republicans are trying to do here? Because we, of course, we have here in California, we have uh, the very system that you, that's now being threatened in Ohio. Yeah, so in Ohio, basically, for 110 years, Ohioans have been able to gather signatures, and a lot of signatures. It's not easy to do. But every once in a while, some issue percolates, raising the minimum wage, integrating the National Guard, you know, you name it. Um, And Ohioans gather signatures, and they put it on the ballot, and 50% plus one wins. In 110 years, there have only been 19 constitutional amendments. So it's not used very often. Uh, but and, it's, and when it's been used, when you look back, the truth is it's good it was used. Again, integrating the National Guard, making sure voting was open to everybody, et cetera. Well, now that there's a group of people in particular that have been gathering signatures to do what Kansas did last August, which is protect a woman's right to choose, and they know full well that that would pass at 50%, the very cynical thing they've done is rush this forward in August to change the rules midstream of something that will be on the ballot in November. And that's this is sort of a mad dash effort to change the rules, essentially retroactively, because the thing's already been certified for the ballot in November, to stop that. And then, of course, down the road, that would also stop efforts to end gerrymandering or you, you name it. So, and the other thing they've done is, in, in addition to raising the threshold to a very hard level of 60%, which in Ohio is a very hard number to reach, they also are trying to make it basically impossible to put things on the ballot at all. They're, they're, they're adding a requirement. It used to be that we had to gather signatures in 44 counties, which is half of them. Now they're saying you got to gather a certain threshold in 88 counties, all of them. That means any single county. Now, I'm driving through a small rural county right now, for example. Any small county could veto on its own something that the rest of Ohio wants. It's a poison pill. They know it. We know it. Um, and it, it would allow special interests to be able to c- cut off at the knees any effort to bring some accountability to this corrupt state house. So, so they really have come up with a number of ways to essentially crush direct democracy in Ohio. In, in our state and a lot of others, direct democracy has played a really important role in moving our state forward on a lot of key issues. They know that. They want to stop that. They want to have power only for themselves. Well, in you know, in California, we direct democracy through these uh, state ballot initiatives. They've more or less supplanted the legislature. They've become our form of democracy, if you will. Yeah. And by California. the way, these can be these can be abused. I, I'm not saying that it can't get carried away, but in Ohio, there isn't a history of. I mean, it's so difficult to get them on the ballot that. Mm. There's no, and I know in California, one thing that happens there is the minute it comes on the ballot, it freezes everything in place, which is also uh, can be used to, to sort of stop stop things. Here, the, it's a high enough threshold that the, only the most serious issues does this seem to happen on. So it, this has not been a tool that has been used. The irony here is they're trying to say that the citizens have somehow been taken advantage of by outside interests or that somehow citizens are using irresponsibly the far greater source of our constitutional amendments in ohio have been from the legislature itself usually to try and change the politics of an election year you know in in 2004 it was the it was the legislature that said we want a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage so they use it for all sorts of political reasons the citizens have generally not come forward on something unless it was very serious and unless there was somewhat of a consensus that the legislature had not moved forward on something that the people wanted, and even when that's happened, only about 25% of the time has have these passed. So this entire thing, they, they have a whole argument about why they need it, but it, it doesn't square with any of the history, with any of the facts, because the truth is this is about stopping a, 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 an, an abortion referendum this November that would, like Kansas, protect a woman's right to choose in Ohio, 
and it's about stopping other reforms down the road, such as ending gerrymandering, that they know that people want to see done. And they had to come up with all sorts of disinformation that it's about something else, but it's clear what this is about. So do you think that the public in Ohio get it? They understand that this is a mendacious power grab? And I think, as far as I know, the Women's Reproductive Rights Initiative on the ballot in November is polling at about 58%. So cynically, the Republicans have raised the threshold to 60%, right? Yeah, I mean, that 60% is hard no matter what. But yeah, they... are the, the 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 referendum language for November starts in the high fifties, and that means that the sixty percent and they always go down. Normally they go down in these things. It probably ends up in the mid fifties. They know that, and sixty becomes not an impossible threshold, but a very difficult one versus fifty. Um, and and it, 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 the other thing that happens is once they stick it at sixty, well then the people you're trying to convince to help you know spend the dollars to, to advertise they all will get cold feet and say well at 60 is it even worth it so they know what they're doing i mean this basically takes a you know again it it cuts the legs out from under um so many of the efforts that we need in ohio to counter a legislature that is gerrymandered and basically unaccountable extremists at this point so how many counties did you have to get aboard an initiative uh, under the current rules, where the, before the Republicans have raised it to all of the counties, particularly the rural counties, that they can count on, it's something like forty-five percent, isn't it? Yeah, it basically, right now you need to get to five percent of the last vote total of the governor's race in forty-four out of eighty-eight counties. Now that's a lot of counties, but it's doable. And if if twenty counties, for whatever reason, decide, well, we don't want to be part of this, well. You can overcome that because you got you got 44 you need. You don't need 88. Um, it's doable, but it's hard work. I mean, that's a big part of the gathering is you need to have a lot from a lot of counties. So when you add it, when you double it to 88, you're not just adding 44 more, which is already a challenge. You're literally saying that every single county could stop it. And it, it, we, we, we literally had someone go to jail about two months ago um, for 20 years. The last speaker of the Ohio House. One of the things that led to the crime that he was convicted for was a multi-million dollar effort to block the gathering of signatures all over the state. And that was when it would be really hard to block it. This would make it really, really easy to block it. All you'd have to do is put up you know, whatever infrastructure you're trying to use to block signatures. Do it in 10 small counties. If you do it successfully in just one of the 10, you just stop the whole thing. So they're clearly giving an invitation for meddling in the process. And that protects the pills they pass and the push the stuff they push and keeps the voters from actually having a say. It's incredibly cynical. It truly is a poison pill. So tell us about the, the former governors that are against it. You mentioned John Kasich. You mentioned the uh, libertarians uh, are against it. Can you tell us exactly who? I mean, I heard that yeah. there was more than one governor that's come out. Yeah, there, there are. There is. We see K- Kasich. Uh, we see Bob Taft, maybe still the biggest name in Republican politics in Ohio, or the Tafts. Uh, he was he was a Secretary of State and he was a governor, saying this is nuts. Um, he he is someone who actually does does not believe in abortion access, but he's still voting no on this because it's viewed by him and so many others as such a anti democracy power grab. So you have libertarians who I think are as skeptical of of the Republican part, the corrupt Republican Party here as anybody. And they are hard against it, and they have sued the Secretary of State for what they consider a hatch act violation, that the sitting Secretary of State who's supposed to run the elections is the one running around saying to vote for this. So you have some very, very conservative people. We've seen trucks with Trump flags with vote no signs on them. Because, again, if you're a skeptical politician and you believe to your core that people should be driving politics in a state, and that's a – that. I would argue for many is a conservative position. You, this thing is, is um, something you, you don't like either. And that's what I've heard from government, from, from small government conservatives is this is a power grab by, by the politicians to take away our power. And so I, I think they are, it seems like, again, I don't know what's going to happen till it's over, but it seems as if they're losing some amount of Republican votes 
who of people who don't believe that, that politicians should be given more power and less accountability. But if the Republicans, are, uh, and they've probably got lots of money behind them, if they're putting out ads that you know appeal to patriotism and to, that this is something the founding fathers would want, and and all of the that kind of mendacity, what's happening on the other side? What kind of television campaigns and other campaigns, or door knocking, or I mean, I want just wanted to get a sense of what the pushback is because once if they win this thing, it's locked in, for, you know, for forever, particularly gerrymandering. Yeah. And you're going to have a hard time, you know, you're the former chair of the the Democratic Party in Ohio. You're going to have a hard time, you know, holding on to Sherrod Brown's seat, et cetera. Well, I think Sherrod can do okay either way. But but overall, I mean, you're, you're basically, I, I've been saying this, the next six hours are the most important hours of democracy in Ohio in my lifetime. Because there's so much that has to be done and none of it will happen to, to clean up a totally broken government if this thing uh, it gets locked into place. So um, I think there's been a good effort. I think that um, the advertising on our side has explained the consequences quite clearly for both abortion access and more broadly democracy. I think there's been for an August special a, a pretty robust get out the vote effort. And right now we're seeing decent signs of that being effective uh, in, in key parts of the state that we're looking at. Um, and um, so I just think it's it's been both grassroots. It's been multi-partisan and it's been uh at the doors on the phones and on tv and radio so we'll see what we'll see where it goes but i, I feel like the i feel like the no campaign ran a better campaign than the yes campaign we will see obviously who is more effective in the end the yes campaign put a lot of money in very late ran some very dishonest ads and this is going to be a test that people fall for a whole lot of disinformation well you know i guess fox news is a, a pushing the the yes because uh, their headlines totally distorted saying this is all to stop liberal states like yeah, California yeah, interfering in the politics of Ohio. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, that's, that's a giveaway. What a, what a joke they are. I mean, that is absolutely a, a, a joke that they would say those words. It's, that's not what this is. Uh, and what a what an embarrassment of a, of a, a company they are that they would run with that propaganda. In fact, a plurality of Republicans in the last poll was against this. So if that continues, and I don't know if it will, that shows you just they're, they're out of touch with, with conservative Republicans if, if that polling holds up. But, yeah, that was complete disinformation to say that. Um, and this, is, is Trump weighing in on this at all? He has not weighed in, interestingly. This thing's been somewhat underwater a lot, and I think he doesn't like to be associated with something that's losing. So he has not weighed in. Mike Pence apparently weighed in today. Shame on him. Um, but um, he we- he weighed in on he in said, support. Yeah, he uh, weighed uh, in. He weighed in. He you know he he's, this is very much driven by a right to life coalition that he's part of. So shame on him for weighing in. I mean, but out of our business. Um, I don't see him doing this in Indiana. But so much of this is from out of state. You know, the biggest funder by far of the whole campaign was a billionaire from Illinois putting four million in. I mean, this is. This is literally about out-of-state people trying to meddle with our state. The main goal here is not Ohio for them. It's to come up with a way to stop abortion referenda around the country. If they can succeed in doing that here, they will bring it elsewhere as soon as they can. And so for, for these for these non-Ohioans who are weighing in left and right, uh, this is a national uh, this is a national operation for them. They're hoping to come up some way to stop a losing streak in Kansas and Kentucky and Michigan. And if um, if they can do it here, they'll do it elsewhere. That's how they operate. Right. Well, they're not just stop, stopping a losing streak. They're stopping democracy itself. Absolutely. Or the, the majority rule. To get what they want. So I mean, they, they, they want to interfere with democracy to get what they want on abortion, other issues, where the majority don't agree with them. I mean, that's, literally, that's as simple as it is. And they're not really hiding it anymore. They used to hide it. They're not hiding it. I mean... This is such an unabashed attempt to subvert democracy so that even if only 41% of Ohioans agree with them, they still win. They win even when they're losing. That's what this is. Well, David Pepper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Of course. Thanks so much. Appreciate the attention to it. Take care. You too.
And again, I've been speaking with David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021. And he's the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing a recent article at the Philosophical Salon, The Socialism of Fools of the Anti-Imperialist Left. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Robinson, who's a distinguished professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He's written widely on global capitalism, world politics, social theory, and Latin America. And his most recent books are The Global Police State, The Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. And he joins us to discuss his article at the Philosophical Salon, The Socialism of Fools of the Anti-Imperialist Left. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Robinson. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us in a provocative title indeed. Uh, Likely to get some of our audience riled up. But frankly, uh, I don't know that the left does its homework in this country. And I'm astounded that uh, there's so much sort of support, for example, for Russia's uh, disgusting and and brutal war against Ukraine um, from the anti-imperialist left when it's so clear that the Soviet Union was an imperialist project, uh, as and certainly with its colonies uh, in the... um, Warsaw Pact and in the Baltic states, it's just hard to uh, escape that reality. Um, yet, you know, there's so much sympathy for uh, the, for Russia from the uh, what you describe as a, the socialism of fools of the anti-imperialist left. Do they really think somehow that this murderous thug and gangster capitalist uh, Vladimir Putin is a socialist? I would certainly hope no one on the left believes he's a socialist. I mean, that is absolutely absurd. This is Russia is now a, f- a capitalist state fully integrated into global capitalism and run by, as you put it, by, by mobsters, by, by capitalist oligarchs, by billionaires and, 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 uh, and millionaires. But, you know, I think one of the things going on here, and I think you're right that the left, certainly in the United States, and much of the West is very shallow in its thinking. And so there's this Manichaean uh, thinking that if we want to condemn the United States for what it does around the world, then therefore we can't condemn what other you know, great powers do, do around the world. And so every all of us should be condemning, this is my view though, condemning um, the, the U.S., Jump into the you know into the war in Ukraine the the, the, the provision of massive amount of armaments um, the provocations through the extension of NATO but we can condemn that and at the same time utterly condemn the Russian invasion you know for what it is you know an imperialist aggression against a country um, run and uh, undertaken by monsters and of course China is a ruthless capitalist state it's state capitalism. Uh, but they've also injected nationalism and that people work incredibly long hours in sort of militant conditions, having to have, you know, sing the company song, which is indistinguishable from the kind of military propaganda, uh, and contribute to China's greatness. So it's, <laughs> it's an even more, I think, ruthless form of capitalism than you have anywhere else in the world because it's tied in with nationalism. 
Absolutely. Well, I'd say all three of these, you know, rising, well, the United States was already a superpower, but as I put, discussed in the article, all three countries, Russia, China, and the United States, are, are really converging around their, you know, this political ideology of great power, you know, of, 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 of lost uh, glorious empires. And so you get this extreme nationalism in, in China, you, you get this uh, Confucian um, o- obedience, um, and you get the same thing from Putin and the same thing from the United States. So, I mean, there's this convergence around these ideologies of extreme chauvinistic uh, nationalism. You know, it's right what you point out also. This, you know, the, the work regime in China is known as 996. You work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Uh, this is an you know, extreme form of capitalist exploitation in China. And I, I, you might get into this in the interview, but as you know, I pointed out that China became a net exporter of capital uh, uh, to the global south um, starting about 20 years ago. And when you look at what China is doing with its um, investment in mining and forestry and logging and in agribusiness, uh, in uh, in, in industry, in Latin America, in Africa, and Asia, there's no difference between the type of exploitation, brutal exploitation, um, that this investment involves that you find with U.S.-based or European-based transnational. You know, and I pointed that out in, in the article. You have, let me just, you know, the, the, the one case that I mentioned, because I've been following this very closely, is La Bamba's uh, mining, copper mining, is an open open pit uh, mining operation. It's one of the biggest in the world. This is in the Peruvian highlands, in the midst of indigenous communities. And these communities have been waging pitched battles. A number of men, members of the communities have died. Uh, hundreds have been injured in these blood, bloody battles with this Chinese-owned mine. And in fact, in Peru, and again, I point out this in the, in the article, um, the Peruvian state protects transnational investors, and they actually loan out the police force, the Peruvian police force, for pay. And so this Chinese mining company is literally purchasing the Peruvian state police force to repress these local communities that have been displaced by the mine and to repress striking mine workers. So there's no difference between what China is doing in the former third world and what U.S. and other uh, transnational corporations do. Right. Well, and you also point out, of course, that China is now one of the most unequal countries in the world. I don't know where it compares to the United States, but there's certainly we have nothing to be proud of here in terms of equality. But the difference, I guess, is that strikes and independent unions are not legal in China. They're still legal here. Um, right. In fact, in fact, unions are making something of a comeback. But that's not to say there's massive resistance uh, by powerful interests in this country against unions, uh, which are, you know, used to be strong in the in the 50s and late 40s. Uh, but now down to about 7% of the uh, workforce. So in terms, though, of your article, The Socialism of Fools of the Anti-Imperialist Left, there's a recent article that came out just a few days ago in the New York Times, A Global Web of Chinese Propaganda Leads to a U.S. Tech Mobile. And this is an expose of an American millionaire, Neville Roy Singham, who lives in in Shanghai, where he shares offices with Chinese government propaganda outfit. He's married to the co-founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans. And Code Pink, of course, used to be quite outspoken against uh, Chinese brutality. And now, and particularly uh, the oppression of the Uyghurs, they, back a few years ago, they wrote, we demand China stop brutal repression of their women's uh, human rights defenders. She wrote on Twitter in 2015 and later posted an Instagram photo with the Chinese dissident Ai Weiwei. But now is singing a very different tune where she stridently supports China and casts it as a defender of the oppressed and a model for economic growth without slavery or war. If the, she quoting her, if the U.S. crushes China, she said in 2021, it would cut off hope for the human race and life on earth. And she describes the Uyghurs now as terrorists who defend and defends their mass detention. What is happening here then, William, in the context of uh, the socialism of fools? Is this uh, fellow mentioned in the article, Neville Roy Singham, is he bankrolling these fools? Is that what it comes down to? 
Well, that's already been documented. It, I, I read the New York Times article, but that information on this financing from this um, tech billionaire to, to Code Pink and also to the Tricontinental and, and Vijay Prasad, that information has been uh, made has been public for the last several years because the Tricontinental, Code Pink, and these other organizations have to um, file their tax returns to the IRS, and those are made public. So we already knew we, we already knew this. The, the New York Times expanded on the investigation, brought it all together. But, you know, it's fairly disgusting that the left receives, uh, the, the, you know, the, the political position of these so-called left groups is determined by who, you know, who pays their budget. Um, it's outrageous. So you mentioned Code Pink. The New York Times article mentioned Code Pink. But, but Vijay Prashad as well. When a number of years ago, a group of um, students, Marxist students, university students in China, um, took their Marxism seriously and went to Shanghai to help organize the workers in, in the factories. They were arrested and jailed without any trial um, by by the state, by the Chinese state. And Prashad condemned that at that time. He wasn't yet receiving his funding. Now he suddenly gets this funding and he defends whatever the Chinese regime does and claims, I mean, this absurd claim that China is a, you know, is a socialist country and that China's China is is helping other you know other other countries and peoples around the world to develop. I mean, there's there's such this unbelievable gap between the actual empirical reality around the world and, and in China, and you know, and the claim by uh, Tricontinental and Prashad, by by Pink and by other you know other these other pro-China groups. The, the gap is enormous between the actual reality on the ground and, and what they claim. So. They claim, of course, Code Pimp and, and Prashad claim that they don't get money from any government. But what's the difference when you're getting money from a guy, Neville Roy Singham, who lives in Shanghai, shares his offices with a Chinese propaganda outfit, sold his tech company ThoughtWorks for about $785 million and, and apparently has donated about $275 million to these groups like Code Pink and Prashad, so and lots of other groups as well. So that doesn't seem like much of a defense. But uh, I'm no, I, I know. I mean, this is I, I I'm bewildered by how people that call themselves on the left, you know, can can um, reach these conclusions. I mean, it's this it's bizarre. I mean, this whole case is absolutely. Um, bizarre and i don't know if you came across this ian but the day after or a couple of days after the new york times was was article was published uh, a letter came out saying no to the new mccarthyism as a response to that article and very disappointingly it was signed um by it was signed by a lot of very important um left scholars and you know and activists so tell me more about that the letter is saying basically that the New York Times and the argument put forward, or you know, the expose by the New York Times, but the but in, behind that, the uh, critique of what China, you know, of the of China and its its role in the world and its role with regard to the the working class and the poor in China and the Uyghurs in China, um, that all of that is simply Western propaganda and this is a new McCarthyism. Uh, so this came out, I guess, a day or two ago, shortly after that New York Times article uh, came out. And I don't have the list in front of me who signed, but these are very important. I mean, the David Harvey um, signed it. A, a lot of very important um, left intellectuals and activists uh, signed on. And I, I don't understand it. I don't understand what's happening to the U.S. and the Western left with regard to the new world we live in. We don't live in a unipolar world anymore. It is a multipolar world, but what we have are multiple centers of capitalist power and capitalist exploitation. That, you know, that doesn't just be because workers that are being exploited in China or in Peru um, just because they look out in the world and they're being exploited by Chinese or Russian or you know other transnational corporations rather than U.S. corporations doesn't mean that their position that their 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 reality is exploited and oppressed groups have improved any. Well, you know, the worst part of it, to my mind, is is abandonment of human rights and concerns about human rights. I mean, that seems to be, if you go back to Jimmy Carter, I think it was an important addition to our kind of political outlook and, and composition of concern because it seems to be any regime that abuses its own people 
is a regime that has to be condemned. And switching from praising, condemning China for the treatment of the Uyghurs by Code Pink to suddenly demonizing the Uyghurs uh, and praising China just seems, you know, I mean, is it all about money or is there some ideological shift happened there with Code Pink? Well, I think there's this tremendous, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't know if, if they simply, they, they just took their payoff and decided to change their political position, which would be incredible, is incredibly opportunist. But there's also a tremendous hypocrisy here because the U.S. and the Western left condemns human rights violations in regimes that are supported by Washington, such as in Saudi Arabia, such as in uh, Egypt, such as in Colombia, prior to the, the current president in, in, in Colombia. And, and yet... The same human rights violations take place in regimes that are being criticized by the United States, and the left decides then that we should not condemn those human rights violations. We should even legitimate those those regimes. Uh, so you have the same, you know, brutal human rights violations okay, in China and of, of the Uyghurs, but not just the Uyghurs, right? Virtually the whole, you know, the the, the whole working class in 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 in, in China. You have systematic human rights violations in Iran. You have systematic human rights violations in Nicaragua, um, none of which are socialist countries, by the way. And these are not condemned. They're actually defended simply because Washington criticizes these um, these regimes. Um, that's one thing going on. The other part of this hypocrisy is that the left always documents and calls out, researches documents and calls out when um, groups around the world, parties, movements around the world, Take money from, for instance, the Agency for International Development or the National Endowment for Democracy or even the CIA and utilize that money to support U.S. foreign policy around the world. We condemn that on the left and that we should. But here you have an exact parallel situation, right? There's funding from the high, you know, from a, from a, from a multi-millionaire uh, closely associated with a repressive capitalist state. And that money is being given and we don't, you know, and this is the same, the exact same in reverse. So this is complete hypocrisy, you know, complete duplicity. Right. Well, that's why I thought human rights were the one of the most important yardsticks. And it does feel like the left has abandoned it. And there's no question that the U.S. Uh, government is totally hypocritical, particularly in their support for Saudi Arabia, which is one of the most disgustingly backward countries on the uh, on the planet in terms of human rights and the re repression of women and they've spread their toxic version of islam around the world so there's no shortage of condemnation of countries that the u.s support but you know you've got people like like lula and right next door lopez obrador who seem equally blind and i is there any way do you think to put human rights back at the center of the political debate, just in the uh, last minute here, I, it should always it should never have been taken out of the center, and it should be right in the center, right in the center. I mean, you, you it's human rights is a is a is a fundamental uh, principle. I mean, the when since when should the left not be condemning human rights violations? We're the victims all over the world. Capitalist states systematically uh, repress and violate the human rights of, of you know. Of, of groups all over the world. When, why should, why in the world should that not be top on the agenda of the left? Well, uh, we'll see. I'm sure I'm going to get some angry um, feedback here, but it is seems to me that uh, you got to call it as it is. And uh, I'm certainly not on anybody's payroll, let, <laughs> let alone <laughs> the Chinese government. <laughs> yeah. So I thank you for joining us, uh, William Robinson. Thank you so much for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with William Robinson, who's a distinguished professor of sociology, global studies and Latin American studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And he's written widely on global capitalism, world politics, social theory and Latin America. And his most recent books are The Global Police State, The Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. And he joined us to discuss his recent article at the Philosophical Salon, The Socialism of Fools of the Anti-Imperialist Left. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Secretary of State Blinken's warning that the Wagner mercenary group are taking advantage of the coup in Niger and look into the situation in Niger and the Sahel where Wagner mercenaries are making inroads. Why? I know why 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tommy Miles, who is an independent scholar and author who has studied the nations of Niger and Mali and Burkina Faso, and who has authored a history on Niger and Mali. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tommy Miles. Thank you. So what do you make of the situation now in Niger, given that the ECOWAS deadline for the military coup to turn the government back to the previous elected uh, leader has passed on Sunday? At this point, there's sort of, uh, what are, what's going on? We're just in, the situation's in flux? How, how would you describe it? I, I would say that the uh, people of Niger... The people of Mali and and everyone around the world is is on tender hooks right now. We really don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Victoria Newland met with uh, the junta leaders uh, and described the meeting from her perspective as frank uh, and nothing achieved. Um, what that means for the rest of us and for the Nigerian people. Uh, is hard to say, but there are discussions ongoing. Uh, the public, I just don't think at this point, knows. Um, what we do know uh, is that the driving public force of uh, a, a, any possible military invention, intervention from ECOWAS, um, Nigeria, uh, has seen a, a setback in its uh, attempts to organize a military intervention from its own government, from its Senate and, and Parliament. Um, so you mean the new leader that, of, of Nigeria has has well, failed new, to get, get the rest of his government on board? Yes, and, and there is, you know, some quite frank speaking from Tanubu's own party's uh, senators saying that um, while they supported uh, a return to constitutional rule, uh, in Niger, uh, they did not and would not support uh, Nigerian military intervention um, because of the human costs, because of the economic costs, and because of the the insurgencies that Nigeria is still fighting itself. Uranium, which is an export of Niger, it has the highest grade uranium ore in Africa, and obviously there are concerns given the insurgencies in the neighborhood that insurgent groups like Boko Haram and and the Islamic State could end up with uranium. I'm not sure what they could do with it, but Chad's leader, and he's a military dictator, he showed up in Niger on Sunday to urge the junta to heed Ekawas's ultimatum. What happened there? Mama Debbie had, by all accounts, a cordial uh, discussion with the new uh, de facto uh, uh, Nigerian leaders, um, but his government made clear that they would not be participating in any uh, military enforcement um, of uh, a return to constitutional rule. Uh, Debbie, the, the son of, of uh, uh, a former longtime leader and ally of, of the French, is himself, as you mentioned, a military dictator. Um, when his father was killed fighting northern forces in, I believe, 2019, he uh, was jobbed into power. And um, it is a common refrain in West Africa and here that uh, the French do not seem particularly concerned about that military government, uh, while they are particularly exercised about the, the especially the Malian uh, and now Nigerian and Burkinabe and Guinean military governments, because these governments, unlike Chad, uh, have publicly and in real actions defied uh, French government policy. But the governments of Mali, Burkina Faso and the Central African Republic also have welcomed the Wagner mercenaries, have they not? Yes. Well, it's still a little up in the air whether Burkinabe... Uh, uh, hosts, the government hosts uh, a Russian, uh, and particularly which Russian, uh, these things, they tend to just say they're Russian, uh, and then you'll get denunciations and claims and counterclaims of uh, whether Wagner is involved. Wagner is definitely involved in Central African Republic, 
quite openly, um, as they were in Libya and Sudan and other places. And they're certainly on the ground in Mali. So I noticed in the demonstrations in Niger that the young Nigerians were holding up Russian flags and was mm. chanting, uh, I love Putin and I love Wagner. How, I mean, what is the breakdown? I believe the last poll that was done in Niger indicated that at least half of the population supported the, the government that was just overthrown in the coup. So yeah. what's your sense of the support amongst the Nigerians for Putin and for Wagner? Um, that's that's a, a, a difficult thing to determine. Uh, first, um, unlike Mali, that, that has had regular uh, um, African-run polling for some time, Niger's polling is generally fairly poor, the uh, PNDS government was popular in the sense that, that it was elected and w was one of the three main popular parties to come out of the 1990s. Um, but uh, discontent uh, in many forms has been brewing for some time. Um, one of the things we see in Bamako as now in Yame is uh, Russian flags and Russian slogans. Um, and much has been made generally in the Western press of this. Um, the best... Uh, summation i think comes from folks i talk to in west africa is that this is a poke in the eye this is intended to be a rejection of france and the enemy of my enemy is my friend and the french government uh responded especially to the first floating of the idea bringing in russian mercenaries or trainers depending on your camp apoplectically in 2021. And if anything, I think this encouraged the popularity of having Russians there. Certainly not their actions, but, you know, many of these young people are legitimately angry at the enemy they know. And they understand that the worst thing France can imagine is uh, them being replaced by the Russians. Well, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has said that the Russian Wagner mercenary group is taking advantage of instability in Niger, but he also said they had nothing to do with the coup. So what what do you think is the situation vis-a-vis -vis the 1,100 American troops there? The French also have a base there. Um, if there is any kind of outside force coming in, even though, as you pointed out, in the in, in Nigeria, that seems to have, that threat seems to have gone nowhere. And they are, the coup leaders are keeping the former head of state alive, are they not? They haven't yes, and, and, and Mohamed Bazoum is by, by all accounts safe, luckily, and quite comfortable, able to receive Visitors, you received Mamet Debbie as well, and uh, was able to, you know, write an editorial for the Washington Post, I believe, and uh, or the New York Times, and have that published. So luckily, he is safe. What this means for U.S. and French basing, and French basing is 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 probably the same size or larger than than American basing, and also bleeds through from Chad that has 4,500 French troops that we know of. What this means for them, we don't know. That's the second of the 64,000 CFA franc questions. The U.S. obviously will not put up with having Russian trainers in Niger, but that seems so far down the road uh, as to be, you know, we will hit many, many more bumps prior to Russians appearing in Yame, especially because the uh, international airport uh, is split between a military and and uh, civilian airport and uh, includes a U.S. contingent there. And um, it's been closed, has it not? 
It has. The whole entire airspace has been closed, though. I saw some reports that uh, there were internal flights that were regularly scheduled for, for personnel between Agadez and Yame, um, despite the closure. And those may have been approved, for all we know, um, coming up on flight aware and those sorts of things. Um, the U.S. wants to keep these things fairly quiet, and they found ways in Mali, after the French were ejected, to continue to quietly work with the government. But the Russians are the red line for the United States. Well, Mohamed Bazoum, who was deposed, but is still able to communicate, as you mentioned, with the leader of Chad, who just visited over the weekend, he wrote a piece uh, in the Washington Post uh, just last week, quote, with an open invitation from the coup plotters and their regional allies, the entire central Sahel region could fall to Russian influence via the Wagner Group, whose brutal terrorism has been on full display in Ukraine. So is that warning being heeded? Well, uh, it depends on who the warning's going out to. So he's saying that, obviously, for a Western audience in the Washington Post. It's a warning, though. I mean, he's a, he's a masterful politician. Uh, he, Bazoum has been involved in the highest levels of one of the three major parties in, in Niger since the 1990s. Um, and he, you don't get to be president um, of uh, a nation like Niger without being a masterful politician. He's saying what he knows will have the maximum effect for a Western audience and for the United States government and for the British government and for the German government. Whether that is the primary threat here, uh, I would question. But he knows that that will stir the U.S. to action. And it appears to have. Uh, sending in Newland is, is, is certainly the highest level of practical U.S. involvement one can imagine uh, diplomatically. But why then the coup? You've described the outgoing leader who's now under house arrest, but able to communicate. What What is the excuse on the part of the military junta for deposing well, him? The, the, the uh, military junta has, has issued, I think we're up to 25 or 26 communiques so far, and, and um, a tel television appearance the day after or late at night of the, the day of the coup. Uh, and um, they have been quite clear that they're uh, fighting insecurity, which they did not feel was uh, being sufficiently addressed, and corruption within the outgoing government. Um, again, uh, like Bazoom's statements, these are for an audience. What we think and think is operative here uh, from the outside or from anywhere is that uh, Abdulraham uh, Tiani, the general who is by all accounts the prime mover of this coup, who was the head of the presidential guard, was concerned that he was being replaced. He was a, a close uh, operative of the previous president from the same party as, as Bazoum, but one of his coterie. And Bazoum was making an effort to distance himself in many ways from the previous section of his party and society and to move his own people. So uh, the other key person along with the head of uh, the presidential guard that there was talks of moving out is, is Sani Mamadou, the former president's son, who had been and was until the coup the uh, petrol minister. So it was believed that this was uh, a uh, opportunity in the run-up to the National Day when the military was going to be parading uh, in Difa on the other end of the country. Uh, Chiani took this opportunity to short-circuit his possible demotion or worse. Um, so again, what's said publicly is is masterfully done for an audience, what is the cause is hard to say. Now, that's not to discount uh, growing discontent in the country. Uh, I think any country that suffers from poverty and, and insurgencies to the level that, that Niger has, as Mali has, as Burkina Faso has, as Chad has, 
that there's a great deal of very sincere discontent at all levels of society. But that can also be useful for politically minded leaders. And it's certainly Chiani is, is a politically minded leader. So just in closing, then, uh, Tommy Miles, uh, why would anybody in Africa think that the Wagner group, after all named after Hitler's favorite composer, the co-founder was a huge admirer of Hitler. Uh, we've seen what uh, Prigozhin has done and his mercenaries have done in, in Ukraine. They're all about extracting resources and diamonds and gold. They're not peace builders or, or you know... <laughs> no. <laughs> by any stretch. So what's their appeal? Is it just that they that, that the, the people in, in West Africa, former... It, those under former French colonies just hate the French so much that they're blinded to the possibility of what Wagner are about? So I, I would say that it, it rests on, on three motives. First, there's, there is great popular and institutional discontent with the French uh, system that remains to this day where the primary suppliers for all sorts of things come come from France, that there's French security uh, uh, agreements are the primary defense agreements. And these are often slanted to benefit the French government and military much more than, than these countries. And so if they were to kick out the French, they would probably not be able to maintain good relations with the U.S. And in many of these countries, they're uh, believe it or not, there really isn't uh, an anger at a um, sort of imperialist United States uh, because that anger is retained for for discontent with the French. Um, but you're really left with, after the parade of the U.S. and the EU leaving in the, the wake of the French, with very few options. And one of the things that the Russians, uh, since, the Soviet, since the fall of the Soviet Union and, and even before, have always been able to export is arms um, and military training. And Mali, for instance, has a long history of, of military relations, both with the Soviet Union and independent Russia. So there are, uh, they're sort of the second string of defense partners, the Chinese are not offering a tremendous amount of military supplies or training or certainly not boots on the ground. Right. So they're the power that's out there and they may be insufficient uh, in comparison with NATO and Western powers in, in every way, but they're what's left. They also will do what the military wants to do. And Mali, in particular, is a good example with uh, going back to the 90s and before a whole series of insurgencies in which the military has been credibly accused time and again of conflating rebels and insurgents and bandits with the communities in which they live uh, and committing atrocities on a fairly regular basis. Uh, this, I should note, is something that most folks I talk to in Bamako will deny completely. So the Russians will it, it, Russian brutality, if you if you'd like, uh, is something that perhaps some of the folks who want to carry out uh, anti-insurgency operations welcome. Uh, and also the last these countries don't have a lot of hard cash to pay, but the Wagner Group will take whatever you got. So if, if you've got a cobalt mine, they'll take the cobalt mine. Right. Uh, and m most, you know, the U.S. generally won't do that. They want cash on the barrelhead. Well, I thank you for joining us, Tommy Miles. I appreciate your input here. Okay. And again, I've been speaking with Tommy Miles, who's a West African enthusiast, independent scholar, author, recovering academic, who's currently writing a book on the history and current situation in Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,